his career in the Canadian military was cut short due to injury. He's here to talk about the injury, what happened, his recovery, and how he's taken lessons learned and spreading that to law enforcement agencies across the globe. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from Canada, I believe it is Manitoba. I, look. I'm not an expert on Canada, and I'm embarrassed to admit that on the radio. We have Adam Kanakin as a guest. Adam, how are you? Thanks for being a guest on the show. Yeah, brother. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Give me the correct pronunciation of where you are calling from. Yeah, the closest major center for me would be Winnipeg, Manitoba. Okay. So the center of Manitoba. Did I say it right when I said Manitoba? Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. Because I, I don't want to be embarrassing myself. I do it all the time with mispronouncing names and whatnot, but I don't want to mispronounce a big part of Canada and really make our neighbors to the north angry. Uh, you are retired Canadian military, correct? That's right. What branch did you serve in? Because I'm not even familiar with the branches of military in Canada. Yeah, I was a former infantry officer. Um, our branches, we have we have uh, three branches, three primary branches of the Canadian Forces. So Army, Air Force, and Navy. So I was out of the Army contingent, combat arms. And thank you for your service. Very much appreciated. How long were you with them? Just over six years. And then your your career was cut short, right? Yeah, career was cut short. I ended up um, suffering a pretty significant spinal injury in training, and that led to a few different things, but ended up led, lending me to a release uh, earlier than I'd expected. That's very common in United States military, and also, I've, I've never served in the military, but also in United States law enforcement. Uh, back injuries, spinal injuries are very prevalent and they are devastating. They cut short careers very early and simple things like load-bearing vests can make a big difference. But you know what? Some of the departments out there, some of the politicians out there think that looks too militaristic. So they'd rather have careers cut short and have to pay out lots of money than have people wear a load-bearing vest. It makes no sense at all. Yeah, that's definitely a great point. I mean, we we see that the same in the Canadian forces, especially in the combat arms, you know, guys that are dismounted, having major injury. If they've been in especially for a long time and they've been an infantier for a long time, the, the joint injuries, the, the knees, the hips, the backs, um, it's just a, it's compounded over time. Right. And so, I mean, it's it's one way or the other. Usually you never walk away 100 um, percent after uh, doing any amount of time. in. that's for sure. With your experience in the military, and without going into great details, then a lot of people can't. And be honest with you, Adam, there are certain parts of my law enforcement career I don't talk about. I don't. I, don't, I certainly won't talk about it on a radio show, and I won't talk about it with strangers. And I'm very select who I will talk about with. Were you involved in any combat operations that negatively impacted you? 
No, I was never involved in anything in that capacity that, that made an impact on me. I would say that the, the biggest impact was after my, my injury, um, the time that I had in after the injury to the point of my release and then the transition period getting into back into the civilian world. Um, that was, that was a, a fairly, lengthy and um and difficult process to say the least and it's not something that is is personal to me it's something that tens of thousands of of military members have faced and and same thing for law enforcement officers um in their transition back into the regular world when i got retired i was hurt in an act of violence and i retired at the age of 33 and said you know we're done goodbye have a nice life and you know it's not enough to live off of but then came the decision, what do I do with the rest of my life? What do I, and I jokingly say, what do I do when I grow up? And I began chasing a career in radio. But there was a big section of several years where I was a fish out of water and I didn't know what to do to myself. All I thought I was good at was policing. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was similar for me. In, I got lucky. And, and I'll tell you why I got lucky was the last little while that I was in, the last few postings that I had, I ended up as the regimental training officer. So I got to to build and conduct training for the entire regiment, um, whether it was going out on field exercises or ranges or pretty much anything that we were doing, domestic deployment. And that really shaped um, a... It cut in a, a niche for me in the training space that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So I got lucky in that the last thing that I did while I was in uniform led to a career outside of uniform. And that's something that not a lot of people have the act, have access to. When you say training, what type of training are you talking about specifically? So I was, in, well, with the, in the military, we, I was in charge of kind of training as a whole. So if we had a unit, um, like a, we were doing platoon level training, would set out what type of we're doing what we're doing for the week what for the month for the year whether it was doing firearms training defensive tactics training navigation or any of the a million things that we do in the military um and then i specialized i i ended up having the opportunity to specialize in cbrn defense so chemical biological radiological nuclear defense training which sounds really big and um complicated but it, it it really boiled down to me being able to run gas huts for a lot of people and, and getting to to enjoy that um, while I was in. But that, so that was the training I conducted in the military, and then when I shifted outside of the military, I brought back in my career in martial arts, which I'd uh, have done since I was a teenager as a defensive tactics instructor, as a member of Ailita, doing law enforcement training, and I kind of tied the two together and then got into training in the law enforcement and private security side of things. The gas huts, we had to go through that in the police academy. And I remember what that was, it was a small center block building. They had us all line up out front. And the guy who was in front of me was a former Marine sergeant. And he did that during basic training at Paris Island. I didn't know it. But you, they, they set off all these tear gas canisters inside. You go in, you have a gas mask on. It's all designed to make you feel confident and know how it works. So... What you're supposed to do is take off your mask, say your name, say your sequence number, and then whatever, and leave. Well, the guy in front of me, I just said, was a United States Marine Corps drill sergeant, 
had done it forever, and he takes off his mask. He gives his name. He gives his date of birth. He gives his the police department sequence number. He gives his social security number. They laugh at him and go, okay, get out of here, smart aleck. So I think this is a piece of cake, Adam. I pull my mask off, take a deep breath. Nothing but coughing and gagging and stuff coming out everywhere. But the funny thing about that is that it's CS gas. Um, and so it's, it's still a capsaicin base, just like we have in the standard OC spray or pepper spray that police carry, but it's, it's in an, um, an aerosol form. And so people don't realize that we don't even use that really at all. We don't use it on the Geneva convention that said, Hey, we're not really supposed to use this, um, on enemy forces. We're not supposed to use this on the public in the civilian world, but Hey, it's okay for us to use it on our soldiers and our, uh, and our officers in training because, well, Hey, we have a stockpile of it. So we might as well use it up. I don't know who made that decision. Yeah. Um, Not not the best decision in the world. We are talking with Adam Kanakin calling us from Manitoba, Canada. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook, for Law Enforcement Today radio show, click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. We have a new podcast. It's called True Crime Fighters Podcast. Yes, it's another true crime podcast, but a little bit different. There's a huge amount of interest in true crime stories, but very little is told of the heroes that fight horrific crime, whether it be law enforcement officers or everyday citizens. We tell their stories on the True Crime Fighters Podcast. Do a Google search for True Crime Fighters Podcast. Subscribe today. Or check us out on Facebook. Do a search for True Crime Fighters. Return conversation with Adam Kanakin. He is a retired Canadian military armed forces. He's also a podcaster. He's got the ILET Network. We'll talk all about that in a bit. Adam, before we went to break, we started talking a little bit about your career in the military and while you didn't see combat there's a lot of things about the military that i really don't understand because i don't have a point of reference i have my police experience and it's similar but it's different and then i've had many guests on the show who were combat veterans united states special operations special forces they saw different things your career there's a lot of sure a lot of things i'm sure about military that people even in canada and definitely united states don't understand am i correct yeah, I mean, there's the one elephant in the room that is the same. It doesn't matter if you're a member of armed forces anywhere in the world or a police officer or a first responder, and that is that brotherhood um, or sisterhood, however you want to call it, when you're in it. That's something that you can talk about until you're blue in the face, but until you actually do it, you don't understand what that means. And I think that is probably... When we, we mentioned that transition a bit earlier um, about my transition and the difficulties, I feel for me that that was the biggest difficulty I had was was that loss of that feeling of camaraderie that you have when you're when you're serving. Um, and I think that's that stands true across the board. Doesn't matter if you're talking military, law enforcement, or anything else. Yeah, I was part of a team. I, I knew where I fit. I knew what my responsibilities were. I, I knew as a sergeant what my job was. 
and I knew how to handle almost everything that came down the pike in law enforcement. Yeah, there were certain things you couldn't train for. You try, but there, there's a big emptiness when all of a sudden that's ripped away from you. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great things about military life um, that are standardized, right? That's one of the things that we pride in in any military is that we standardize things very, very well. And so it, it can get to the point of the almost mundane when, like, hey, I know I'm getting up at, at 5 for PT, and I'm doing mess at 6 a.m., and I'm doing, you know, lunch at 11.30, and I'm doing, and the end of the day is at 4 o'clock or whatever it is, and then I'm going to the gym, and everything's very regimented. And you lose, it, it's interesting when you break off of that and you go back to the regular world, and those little pieces aren't in place anymore, right? Those aren't, the, the things that you're so used to doing over and over aren't there, and you, you continue with the process because you're so used to doing it. I'm so used to waking up at 5 a.m. without an alarm clock. And then it's an interesting realization when that starts fading away. And it's, it's kind of like, oh, well, if this is fading away, what else is fading away? What else am I forgetting? What else is changing in my transition outside of uniform? Uh, and that can be scary for a lot of people. One of the big things I've heard people say, the difference between law enforcement and military is the military spends about 80% of the time training for possible situations and 20% in those situations and exact opposite for law enforcement. They spend about 20% of the time training and 80% of the time involved in the stuff. And this is one thing that American public gets so wrong. It's not their fault because the media tells them all the time. And I've heard very popular broadcasters that come from military backgrounds, the United States military backgrounds, saying the police don't get training. Well, we get training every year. And then every day at roll call, we had more training. And it's a lot of things people don't understand. Is there any truth to that part about the training all the time and having to maintain your edge? That Does that wear on you physically and mentally? I don't think it wears on you. Um, it, you know, it's, it gets to the point where it's, it's just part of the everyday life, right? I mean, the training just becomes part of what I'm doing. That's, that's what you're getting paid to do. You're getting paid to have yourself at a state of operational readiness so that if stuff hits the fan, you're able to deploy and do your job and do what needs to be done when you're called upon by your country to do so. And I think that's a, that's a calling that every single member of the military takes seriously in that it's so it, it doesn't feel like it's a drain having to just stay at this level of high readiness. And obviously in the military, we, we cycle in and out of that, right? So we have units that are in a high level of readiness that will drop down into more of a training cycle or, or, or a battalion cycle and then back up again. And so that you're not always constantly like, am I deploying tomorrow? But, you know, we, it's interesting because in the military, we have that, it's, it's kind of like a, it ebbs and flows, the, the levels of, of readiness. Whereas in law enforcement, there is no ebb and flow. It's every single day you are, you have to be queued up and functioning at 110% and ready to go, which is, which is something I don't think the public realizes is that constant level of stress that our law enforcement officers are under. No, I don't think they do. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of our law enforcement officers don't get it either, to, to be totally honest. I, I, I tell people, I used to mentally try to undress when I take off my soft body armor, whether it be at home or at the locker room at the police district. And in my mind, I was visually trying to change from Cop J to Husband J and Father J and all that other stuff. And I did really well with it for quite a long time, Adam, until 
I wasn't doing well with it at all. And the truth is, the deterioration or the progression downwards was so subtle and so slow, I didn't see it happening until it's like someone pulled the rug out from under me. Yeah, well, absolutely. Right? I mean, and that, and that comes into play in a lot of different ways. A lot of people think it's malicious. Like, an officer will intentionally not be up to the same speed that they were five years ago, ten years ago, and it's a person, and it's a it's a conscious decision on their part. Wherein, from a training perspective, we understand that there's there's something about complacency, just not only from the officer standpoint, but from the organizational standpoint, that if if complacency is built into the culture of an agency, you don't understand when your officers are coming to those points where they may not be ready or 100% ready to go every single day because there's been so much loaded onto them and no way for them to take that off, whether it's emotionally, physically, or anything else, even when they're at home. We used to say, and I, I know they still say it, complacency kills. In police work, in law enforcement, I don't care if you are in a big city department like I was or you are in a rural sheriff's department or somewhere in between, you get complacent you might lose your life or be seriously, catastrophically injured. And it happens all the time. And here's the funny thing. I don't mean funny as in ha-ha funny, as in ironic. It happens when you least expect it and it pops up out of absolutely nowhere. You know, it's, it's here's a funny conversation that I've had multiple times on our show and in lots of training classes. It's, and, and again, for, for the audience here listening, the one thing we always I always tell people is, it's hard for some somebody to understand the level of violence that is that certain human beings are capable of when you can't comprehend that yourself. When we deploy in the military and we go overseas and we're in an active combat zone, we expect that everybody is trying to kill us. That's just that's just what you do. But as a law enforcement officer, you're going out on the road and you don't know who is thinking what, who's going to be doing what, what people's motivations are when you pull somebody over, when you show up to a, a domestic call or anything in between. And it's, it's interesting for the general public to understand that there's people out there that will literally kill you for a sandwich. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with Adam Kanakin. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. If you haven't done so already, please download our app. It's 100% free. We got versions for your Android and iPhone devices, 100% free. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Be sure to get yours today. We will be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Back to our conversation with Adam Kanakin on the Law Enforcement Today Show, calling us from above the border, Canada, Manitoba, Canada, retired Canadian military. Uh, I guess that would be Canadian Army. Is that what it was, Adam? 
Yeah, we, Canadian Armed Forces is the technical term. I get all the terms you guys use up there wrong. And I'm sure you get a lot of ours wrong as well. Yeah, yeah, from time to time. Acronyms are always an amazing thing. It doesn't matter the, if you're in military or law enforcement. Here's the funny thing. And, and this, I mean funny as in ha-ha funny and ironic, is that we share similar languages, pretty much the same. Although, like when I visited Ireland, I spoke English, they spoke English, and it was two totally different languages, by the way. But we have so many different concepts about things about sports about the size the size of canada alone is huge and i don't think we comprehend it and a lot of the societal things that you all do and you refer to that we don't and it's like speaking totally different languages yeah i mean you find that anywhere in the world um it is funny that we're so close and we're we're neighbors yet um it is very culturally different right um even down to even down to our militaries and law enforcement so it's it's funny it's funny I have a lot of conversations well every single day I have conversations with officers or chiefs or instructors in the United States and we always kind of bounce back and forth like hey what's happening down there and what's happening up here because it gives you a different perspective of what's happening in the world right now. I want to shift gears back to our conversation that we had before winter break and you brought up a good point about how these things can happen in law enforcement quickly without notice we're both talking about that and I just got a quick flashback in my career. I was a, a fairly young patrolman in Baltimore, and we had a call late at, late at night, early in the morning. Uh, it was a murder. Murder just occurred. And they'd beaten this man and stabbed him to death, and we're looking for three suspects. And they're, they'd walked away. We had a general idea of where they were, general description, all that. I'm driving down the street by myself. We didn't have two-man cars. We were by ourselves. And I pulled down the street. I make a right-hand turn, go down the street, and there they are, walking down the street about 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. You can see the blood on them. And it's me and them, and that's it. And fortunately, they gave up without a fight. But it could have been very ugly very fast. Yo, yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because it happens both ways, right? You can, you can be going into a situation where you expect somebody to be calm, cool, and collected, and all of a sudden they change gears on you and you're in a fight for your life. Conversely, you can be going into a situation because you get call code three to a call, and you're rolling up, and you're expecting to have, get into a fight, and everyone is completely calm. And now you have to switch gears right away and be like, okay, how do I now calm myself down so that I can deal with these people at the level that they're at? And it, it happens both ways, and it's, it's a really interesting concept from a training perspective, especially as to how do we start addressing that for every officer. The training part of it is, no matter how hard you try, and, and here's two things that I want people to hear very clearly. We had an exercise in the academy that we did several times and also in our yearly in-service. And it was try to handcuff this person who doesn't want to be handcuffed without using force. And it was impossible. And I'm talking, I'm a six-foot guy. At the time, I was about 190 pounds, benching 300 pounds. I was in great shape. And a small woman, five foot two, 110 pounds, who did not want to be handcuffed, you couldn't do it unless you wound up using force. And you, you don't go that far in training, obviously. But people don't understand how difficult it is to get someone under control that wants to fight you every step of the way, even just flailing at arms and all that stuff. The other one was the knife or the gun. And what they did was they gave us a, a training pistol that was made from wood. And the other one, the bad guy, had a, a training pistol made from wood. And he had it hanging by his side in his hand. And they said, when he starts to move to point it towards you, then you can react. And every single time, 
every single time they were able to shoot us multiple times before we reacted because it takes about three quarters of seconds to react and by that time they're already firing. They know what they want to do. Same with a knife. They cover a lot of distance. People don't get that and they're like, well, you didn't have to do that. You could have done this. They could have done that. They could have run. Sometimes it's not an option. Yeah, you you know, you bring up a, a great point. Action is always faster than reaction. You know, we... And, and we talk about it in the law enforcement and military space when we talk about training and we talk about incidents where we have to use a firearm or any other type of instrument or tool that we have available to us. But it, it's the same in, in anything, right? I mean, there's a reason why the, the starting blocks at an Olympic 100-meter dash event, why that is such a key component to the actual training for an Olympic athlete. I did track and field when I was in university. And I mean, we shit, we would spend so much time training the starting blocks and that, that starting pistol going off because you have to train your body to react to some type of stimulus because it's instinctively, there's a delay. You can train out some of that delay, but it never goes away. And the best athletes in the world are able to react quickly but they train two, four, eight hours a day every day. And we going back to that concept that you had talked about for law enforcement, they're getting training, but how much training are they getting in that one specific inst- or training piece every single day? It's not happening. It may happen for two hours, four hours, eight hours every year. It's just not enough. You know what I mean? To expect that, that instantaneous reaction every single time that I think is what the public have come to expect, and it's just physiologically not possible. It is not possible, and you just do the best you can. And somehow, by the grace of God, and I got out of it, I survived. Not everyone did. Uh, I, Of course, I had, I'm technically physically disabled. I have injuries, and people wouldn't know unless they really look close, but kind of like your spine injury. I had multiple surgeries. I thought I sprained my wrist. Multiple surgeries, three of them, two steel plates put in, and I have no movement in my right hand or wrist. And that's why I was retired, because I'm right-handed. So people don't see that. They also don't see, we try explaining what happened, Adam, and they're like, well, why didn't you just do this? Why didn't you just do that? That's why I don't have that conversation with people. And when people ask me at a barbecue, for example, I've gotten much better because I'm a lot older, but when I was younger, they'd say, some guy approached you with a beer and say, hey, did you ever shoot anybody? And at, at first I was you know, very nice and polite. Then I'd say, you know, that's the dumbest question anyone's ever asked me. Why would I want to Why would I want to have that conversation with a total stranger over a, a hamburger? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's funny you bring that up. I mean, you. I think that's a commonality amongst most people that have served or have ever been in um, combat or have dealt with somebody where they've been a in a uh, lethal force situation. Um, I personally haven't, you know, thank God, but there's there's a lot of officers and a lot of military members, and I think that's the, the standard across the board is I don't think people, people are, because of current status in media and, and what's happening right now, people are led to believe that officers function like robots, and it's like something happens, oh, I shoot them, and it's, it's totally fine. They, they take out the component that that's a human being, and to go back to the, the very beginning of our conversation, we talk about difficulties for, for members, whether you're transitioning or you're in, there's a massive emotional component to everything that we do. And when you're involved in these types of situations, it's not something that you can easily slough off. I mean, there are a few people, um, we, we know them that are a lot better at dealing with it than others, 
But there's a reason why officer suicides are up to the level that they are this year and last year. And it's because of these difficult situations that we're putting our officers in, and then we're not giving them the tools to to deal with that at, from an emotional perspective. Um, and, and it's really a shame because um, I don't think people understand what kind of toll that takes on somebody, asking them to put themselves in a position where they potentially have to take someone else's life. That's not an easy decision for anybody to make. Never is. And we are talking with Adam Kanakin. Adam is a retired Canadian military. He's also a podcaster. He has the ILET network, which we'll talk about in a few moments. And we're going to talk about some of the things that he is doing to help. And I'm going to ask a very pointed question. The same type of media coverage for law enforcement in Canada as there is in the United States now, because we know what's going on is having a definite impact here. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T radio show. When we return, we're gonna cover that and much more. Don't go anywhere, we'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603 That's 800-451-8603 Return our conversation with Adam Kanakin, retired Canadian military, also a podcaster. He has the ILET Network and much more, which we'll talk about in a few moments. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. Adam is in Canada. Got a question. I've had a couple guests on the show from Canada. And I, I want to know this. Is the news media covering police and law enforcement the same biased way that they are here in the United States? That's a fairly loaded question, brother. Here's the easy answer. Canada is usually a microcosm of what the current geopolitical climate is in the United States. So usually what happens down in the U.S. is is seen in some way, shape, or form in Canada. Um, slightly delayed most parts, but we still see it up here. Um, we still have, um, we're having protests, we're having people that come out. We have all of those groups up here. We haven't gotten to the point where we have, you know, riots and damage and those types of things. But there is definitely a, a public outcry for police reform. There has been a lot of media coverage on certain groups that want to defund the police or to reduce budgets up here in Canada as well. And so that's something that's pretty much standard across the board. We just haven't seen the levels of violence that have occurred in the U.S. But to your question about media and traditional media, it's the same in the States as it is up here. It's, it, traditional media is is 
controlled more so by the left political-leaning establishment than it is the right. Um, our government right now is very, very left. Um, we have a liberal, liberal government in charge, which doesn't help the current state of law enforcement. Um, but at the same time, it, it, we're making it work, right? We're, we're making it work, and we're still making effective change at the community level, which is what's most important. Having said that, I have no idea how things work legislatively in Canada. Here, most police departments are part of the executive branch of the government, meaning the mayor, uh, the county pres- council president, or mayor of the county, mayor of the city, governor of state. And what happens is these people are elected and also the legislators who create the laws are elected, but the police departments serve under the command of the executive branch of government. So we have three branches of government. Another one ends up happening is the legislative branch will always pick fights with the executive branch and police quite often are the target. Having said that, there's lots of things in our past that need to be justified and rectified and changed. But it's brought about by the mayor, the city council, the the, the county council, whoever. They're the ones who pass this stuff. And they're the ones who say, hey, go out and enforce it. And by the way, this business is complaining about so-and-so on a street. You need to go out there and get them off the street. And as long as it goes well, that's great. But if there's any kind of problem, any kind of pushback, any kind of fight, and someone gets hurt, then it's the police's fault. Yeah, you know, it's it, that's an interesting conversation and definitely one that we we don't have time to get into with what time we have remaining. But, no. you know, it, it comes down to education. In my book, everything in the world comes down to knowledge. And so what I would what I would hope for is that people that are on boards that are either on civilian oversight committees that are um, elected government officials, they go through and see the training and see the realities of the occupations that they're creating policy for. And that's not just law enforcement, that's fire, EMS, emergency services, everything. They need to have a baseline understanding before they go and create policies and procedures that affect the way that we can actually conduct business and the way that it needs to be done. And so that that's my big hope. And actually, I just found out today um, that Arizona is just passing a bill that is going to establish that any member of a civilian oversight committee for an officer use of force is going to have to go through a mandated state training for 80 hours on use of force training prior to being able to sit on that committee. That's a fantastic first step. Not because it's going to change their outlook or their perspective, but it's going to allow them more information to make a decision. The goal isn't to shift people's viewpoint. It's to give them more information to make the correct decision so that they're not using it based off of biased data and information coming from another source. One of the constant complaints we hear all the time, and I've had guests on the show and we explain why these things occur, is the militarization, or as they call the over-militarization of American police. Is that an issue in Canada as well? I mean, that's been around since day one, right? There's a reason why rolling out long guns in police vehicles took so long. And by long guns, I mean AR platforms. There's always been this push where we want the the police officers. I mean, we in, in Canada, in the way our constitution is written and in our criminal code and everything, our officers are, relate, or are, are referenced to as peace officers. So everything is a peace officer. Obviously, we have the front-facing police, but everything is a peace officer. And the communities generally take that as a guideline as they're there first and foremost to make sure that peace and order is maintained. And the law enforcement is secondary 
to that goal. And that's kind of just a little bit of a different approach. Um, You see that same thing in other Commonwealth countries, like in Europe and in Australia. It's just a little bit of a different approach as to the way that law enforcement is looked at in the United States. Yeah, we had the old saying, protect and serve. And that's what we did. And 99% of what we did had nothing to do. There's no conflicts. There was no arrests. There was nothing. And even when there's arrest, there wasn't much conflict or resistance with that as well. For example, the AR rifles or patrol rifles, those really came into fruition after the North Hollywood Bank shootout, which we don't have enough time to talk about. You had other situations like the Austin, Texas Bell Tower shooting and where officers had 38 revolvers and no soft body armor. And and then North Hollywood, they had injured officers down. These guys are heavily armed using soft ballistic armor and they couldn't get to the officers. That's why you had the MRAP vehicles to to rescue them lots of reasons why but we'll cover that another day i want to not short you because you've done some pretty fantastic things in your post-military career one is the ilet network what is that the easiest way i can explain this is it's truly a collaborative effort on changing the standard of training in not just the united states and in canada but internationally We had the opportunity to run an event last year where we had 10,000 officers from 76 countries attend, and we ran it for free. So we had 40-plus of the world's top instructors, and we put that content out for free. And what I also did was when we marketed that event, we had a lot of community and people of the general public that came back um, very vindictively and, and trying to shoot down the event, saying things like, well, what are you training police officers, how to kill people and get away with it? Or, you know, what kind of ticket is this going to be a free ticket for a speeding ticket or things like that? And um, what I did was I reached out to each and every one of those members of the community personally, and I invited them to attend the training. I said, of what we teach law enforcement isn't something where we walk them down into a basement and it's secret squirrel stuff and then we burn the tape and it's never to be spoken of again. It's open to the public. And so what we want to do is start creating that community relationship where the public understand what it is exactly we're training law enforcement so that they know what to expect when they show up to these calls when when they're in trouble. So that's kind of how everything started. And you have a website for that? Yeah, website's super simple. It's ilet.network. And also, you have a pretty prominent podcast called The Tactical Breakdown. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, that's where everything started, man. And, you know, that's where you and I first got connected was when I started rolling out The Tactical Breakdown. And it's really, it's simply just a a resource for officers, for trainers specifically, to talk about what's currently happening in law enforcement training and how we can better serve our communities, how we can better train our officers to make sure that everybody goes home safe. And by the way, some of the things we talked about in training, and people love to imagine that it's use of force training. By the way, we got very little use of force training. Nowhere near enough, and we didn't get anywhere near enough with with handguns either. Most of it was about sensitivity training or uh, child abuse investigation training, uh, sex trafficking training, rape investigation training. All those things are very intensive and took years and years. People seem to think it's all nefarious and negative. 
No, you're absolutely right. Everybody has a misguided concept of what type of training we actually give law enforcement on a day-to-day basis. For example, one of our major events is the International Summit on Counter-Sex Trafficking, which is three days of training, and it's specifically the sex trafficking. We're not talking about shooting. We're not talking about mat work or handcuffing. It's it's about investigations and how to help um, victims of these crimes and how to prosecute the offenders of those crimes. And it's it's more applicable to the community than I think people realize. Adam, thanks so much for being guest on the show, and thanks for all you do. All very much appreciated. Thanks, brother. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.